This podcast, this podcast is brought to you by the Vitz School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.vitz.ac.za. Vitz.ac.za. Today's webinar is about women's leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we have three prominent panelists joining us today. Our first panelist is Judy Dlamini. Um, Lamini is a businesswoman and author who is also the Chancellor of the University of the Witwatershant and the founding chairperson of Mekani Group. We also have Busisiwe Mavuso. Busi is the CEO of Business Leadership South Africa. She's also a board member of ESCOM and is a certified chartered accountant. Lastly, we have Dr. Tabi Leoka. Tabi is an econ economic strategist focusing on the upward growth of the South African economy and a board member of Corruption Watch. So today, each of our panelists will have a short presentation to give you about women's leadership during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this will be followed by a Q&A session afterwards. So please jot down your questions in the Q&A or the chat as they go, and we'll hear from them then on their expert expertise. Um, Mam Judy, we'll start with you. Uh, thanks very much, Udile. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, I look forward to sharing a few, um, at least the, the way I see it. Um, I actually love the sign because we might not have equity yet, but that is the aspiration that uh, one day there will be equity between men and women. I'll start with this slide. Everyone is talking about the seven women-led companies that have managed the COVID um, pandemic well. And uh, as alluded to earlier by some of my colleagues, uh, it is said that uh, none of them comes from the continent, but they represent us well. If you consider that 19 uh, women lead out of the 193 uh, UN members, uh, it's quite a significant proportion, more than 30% that has shown leadership. And uh, it's actually important to just note that um, they've suffered six times fewer confirmed deaths from COVID and uh, their peaks have been six times lower than in other countries when it comes to uh, COVID positive cases. Uh, mm -hmm. You then ask yourself, what did they do differently uh, that the other countries uh, did not? Because it then talks to a leadership style, if you like. A, one of the things is the early consultation with experts in the area. I find that obviously it's always a generalization, but I find that women tend to respect uh, stakeholders that they work with, even if they lead them. Uh, they know they don't have all the answers, so they'll go out of their way to consult. So that is a collaborative and participatory leadership, if you like. And uh, the containment measures were implemented early, so that's being decisive, uh, which is very important for a leader at any one point in time, rather make wrong decisions than not making a decision. So we see that de being displayed by the seven women. Uh, and over the past few years, most women-led governments have placed stronger emphasis on social and environmental well-being. Uh, there is uh, one quote from our current UN executive director, who is also one of the two uh, women in this country that uh, held the position of a deputy president, where she says, 
when you have a problem, you need to solve for the lowest in the food chain, value chain. Because when you do that, then you've solved the bigger problem for the whole population. And uh, that's just so true. And it's also important to, even if you look at the, the global, the WEF um, uh, country analysis, they also allude to the fact that women-led company, I mean countries, tend to make sure that there is a redress in terms of health and education. And those two are a pillar of any progress in any uh, society. Um, they also, in this study, actually I'm quoting from the study that was done by University of Pretoria and uh, Trinity College. They also say they tend to be more equal with uh, an average of five point lower Gini index in, in terms of income distribution. And lastly, when it comes to the women-led countries, uh, the study shows that uh, they, they are likely to suffer the least from the ensuing economic recession. Uh, actually, uh, Tabi will be better uh, placed uh, to talk to that because there was a pre-COVID. So we're just looking at a snapshot uh, of what happened between March and I think June. Uh, if you compare this to the men-led countries, uh, you find that they downplayed the initial warnings and uh, your typical examples are the countries that are the, the hot spots, if you like, in the top five. We are in the top five, but then there are different reasons for that which I won't get into. But uh, if you look at America, if you look at Brazil, if you look at Russia, uh, the downplaying um, which does tend to be linked to the macho attitude when you address problems, which obviously has a downside to it, as we have uh, observed. And they acted with substantial delays to respond to the crisis. Uh, I, I can't emphasize that more because in spite of the scientists saying that you actually have to wear a mask for various reasons, uh, there was still debate in some countries, actually, it's not even uh, something that you have uh, to observe, leading to why we are where we are. So the next question then is why? Why did these women uh, do so well during this uh, pandemic? Uh, one of them is culture. Uh, if a country is progressive enough to see women as equals, to appreciate that they can lead. Already you have a society that is, it, it embraces difference. Uh, and I think that is very important in any country, in any society to embrace difference. Because when you embrace difference, then you, best, you get the best of them all because your pool is 100% of the society. Whereas when a small minority has the chance to lead, you actually get the best of the, of the worst, actually. So you are not using the more than 50%, which happens to be the case uh, in the world and in this country. And uh, this one, obviously, uh, it, it, it does make sense that if you have to lead as a minority, and in this case, we're talking gender, you almost have to be more qualified than the next person. Uh, if I might just uh, share a research that I did about seven years ago, 
where I looked at um, about 13 women leaders in South Africa. Um, my issue was we always hear the statistics, you always get the numbers, but you never get to know the story behind the numbers. If you say we only have uh, one woman in the top 40 JSE listed companies, uh, what's that woman's story? So I was intrigued by just trying to understand what has been a journey of that woman. But also, we focus on gender or race. We really focus on the intersection of that, but also of other social identities, like social class, like um, generational uh, issues. So I found it quite interesting that of the 13 women, it's not surprising that it's not just gender. If you are also black, you're dealing with two social identities of disadvantage. And you'll find that African women, black African women, have to work three times as harder. And uh, they have to take so much longer to reach a position of uh, leadership. And uh, it's only African women in the study that had PhDs, MBAs, and they took that much longer. So those are just some of the things because if you now are in a leadership position and you happen to have all the social identities that disadvantage you, guess what? You are so prepared because you've had to break so many barriers. So um, what this tells us, not that we didn't know, is that women are as capable leaders as men, if not better. And uh, obviously, COVID is upon us and we haven't seen the end of it, no matter what the final outcome is, because we know we have peaks. Uh, you have your first peak and you think you are done, then there's the second one. And even scientists are still unpacking uh, the virus and its behavior. But in spite of that, women have shown us that they can do the job under crisis. And it really takes a good leader to do well under crisis. Uh, then I thought I would just talk about uh, effective leadership because it's a month of women and we're talking leadership uh, at a business school. And uh, my understanding of effective leadership, obviously uh, other people can come and uh, push back in terms of whether that understanding is accurate or not. Uh, I'll start with uh, a quote that I think makes sense, especially under the crisis we find ourselves in. Uh, the pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects it to change. The leader adjusts the sails. So the leader does something. Don't tell us that we have a challenge of gender-based violence. We know that. Don't tell us we have a high rate of femicide. We know that. Tell us what you're doing to change it. So that is effective leadership. And um, I always find that each one of us as leaders are different. We bring certain characteristics to the leadership position we find ourselves in. And it's important to understand yourself, your style, a style that works for you, because you don't want to try to be somebody else because you have different strengths and weaknesses. One of the things that uh, has been said so many times as women uh, started entering the boards, obviously it's not as bad as it used to be during our days when we started entering the boards. 
uh, that you actually don't have, you don't want to be a mini man. You're not trying to be a man. You are happy with being a woman. Just do it your way. Understand the rules of the game and bring your perspective to, to become effective as a leader. And uh, these are just some of the characteristics that I've observed tend to work. It's the characteristics that were shared by the women that I interviewed for the thesis, but also in my book. It's important to be agile because the context changes. And when the context changes, then you are required as a leader to fish a different tool that will serve the purpose at the time. And um, it's, a, it's very important to be humble. Uh, people mistake being humble to being timid, and it's not the same. You can be confident and be humble at the same time. And humility is beautiful because it makes you accessible to the people that you lead. And being accessible is key because when you are accessible, even the sweeper can come to you and say, I'm not sure we're doing okay. And you learn from them. And each person has something to offer. And if you allow them into the space and embrace them uh, with their perceived uh, different levels, then you'll be much better for it. And the organization and the country will gain from that. Uh, we always talk diversity, but diversity on its own is a box ticking exercise. If you bring people that are different, but expect them to assimilate to an existing culture, then you've lost them because they cannot be innovative. They cannot own the space. They cannot own their voice unless the culture is inclusive, unless they know they matter and their voice is just as loud as anybody else's. And uh, I can't express integrity uh, enough because if you have integrity, and you find that uh, we now have a crisis as a country, we need PPEs, we need this, the last thing you think of is what you are going to make out of that situation. The only thing you think of is how do I save as many people as possible? And uh, this cannot also be um, underemphasized, the lifelong learning of individuals, not only leaders, but each person, you are a better person because you never stop learning. Uh, learning from other people, the networks around you, but also just empowering yourself with knowledge, uh, whether it is general knowledge or actually going all the way out uh, to study. Uh, before I end on this, I just want to say one of the things that has shown us where we stand as society is COVID. It has shown us, we've always known that we are the most unequal country uh, in the world, but the impact of that has been so blatant. And it actually was, it's very concerning uh, that there's so many people in this country and they happen to look like me uh, who have no access to basic services. We've always been talking about universal health. When I was at medical school in the 80s, we were talking about universal health. We were hoping that when we get independence, that is one of the places where we would start. But guess what? 
we still have resistance when it comes to universal health. And guess what? The people that don't have medical aid, people that don't have a, just decent a, living standards are the most affected a, by this COVID. It will be an interesting research to see once COVID is behind us, one, the profile of the people that succumbed to it, two, what the new, sorry, the new normal is going to be, because we'll never go back and shouldn't go back to pre-COVID, because nothing was right pre-COVID. Equity has to be attained, and each one of us, especially those who are tasked with the responsibility to lead, whether it's in government, especially in government, because policies determine what happens in society, but also business leaders, also leaders in academia, and also leaders in society. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thanks, Mom Judy. Uh, yes, I think I agree. COVID has really shed a light on already existing challenges that we have within our society. And we are now actually starting to see how effective or ineffective our current leadership is. Um, but without further ado, we'll go um, to Dr. Tabi. And so the topic we were given was the rise of women leadership during COVID-19. And so when I looked at that, I thought I was a bit thrown aback because that's a very challenging topic, given that um, we're experiencing a pandemic that has set women back globally. It has been a tough period for women. Women make up 70% of all health and social services staff globally. Domestic, sexual, gender-based violence having, has increased during the pandemic. Women make up the majority of those in the informal sector. So their income has been greatly affected by this pandemic. And women are still earning three-thirds of what men earn. With lockdowns and economic stoppages, women are at a relatively higher risk of losing their jobs. Many women are crammed in the most labor-intensive, low-income sectors of the economy. These sectors are most exposed to suffering from economic restrictions, such as international travel, international trade, and global value chain restrictions. So during the pandemic, women have played multiple roles of supporting their families whilst working from home. In a recent op-ed by Sheryl uh, Sandberg, the chief operating officer of uh, Facebook, drew attention to the double-double shift that COVID-19 is imposing on women. Women have multiple roles in society. They have a role as income earners in the professional economic space, in addition to being unpaid care providers in the private social space, while in some countries they are social providers, um, so solution providers on how to palliate to a lack of access to basic services in um, homes in the home, such as energy and water. COVID-19 is forcing many women in the world to work from home while making while having at the same time to care for their families, their children, their spouses and elderly, and handle household chores. In situations where domestic violence and physical abuse prevail, aggravated by male spouses who have, left, who have lost jobs and are becoming frustrated, some women are facing more than a double-double shift 
they are fast becoming major silent second round sufferers of the COVID-19 plight. In many countries, women in, uh, women's participation in the labor market is often in the form of temporary employment. Across the world, women represent less than 40% of total employment and make up 57% of those working part-time. In many sub-Saharan African countries, travel restrictions have con has constrained the many women in the informal sector who depend on incomes that are earned on a daily basis from plying their trade. Because of the nature of the pandemic, which has confined us all to our homes, leadership roles have become more evident in political sphere. And this is where I think Mum, Judy and I, one would actually argue that we were sitting together when we wrote our uh, presentations, because we do quote from the same studies. The outbreak of um, the COVID-19 has been an enormous test of leadership. Throughout the turbulent period, one thing is clear, some countries have fared markedly better than others in suppressing the uh, coronavirus. And these countries tend to have female leaders. And this is Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand as an example, Ai Ing-wen of Taiwan and Angela Merkel of Germany have all been singled out for the way they have handled the uh, pandemic. They've been praised for demonstrating core empathy and a collaborative uh, approach. It has made them come across as transparent and accountable at a time of mass confusion. So I'll also quote from the study, um, study, a recent study from the University of Pretoria and Trinity, uh, but I'll use different uh, quotations than the one Mum Judy used. So the study um, found that countries with women in position of leadership suffered six times fewer confirmed uh, deaths from COVID-19 than countries governed by um, uh, or led by men. Female-led governments were more effective and rapid at flattening the, the curve, with peaks in daily deaths roughly six times lower than in countries ruled by men. The average number of days with confirmed deaths was uh, 34 in countries ruled by women and 48 in countries ruled by men. Women-led governments tend to avoid groupthink and blind spots by ensuring representatives with diverse backgrounds and expertise are at the table um, when major decisions are made. In Germany, for instance, Angela Merkel's government considered a variety of different information sources in developing its uh, COVID-19 policy, including epidemiological models data from medical providers and evidence um, from South Korea's successful program of testing and isolation. As a result, the country has achieved a COVID-19 death rate that is dramatically lower than those of other European countries. By contrast, the male-led government of Sweden and Britain and the US, for instance, um, all have high coronavirus death tolls appear to have relied primarily on uh, epidemiological modeling by their own advisors, with few channels for dissent from outside experts. Women don't have a, a monopoly on these skills, 
but they might be less likely to let the egos get into, into the way or play politics with the prices. To understand the success of these women leaders in handling COVID-19, the focus should be on a political culture and institutions which allow women who adopt a feminine approach to leadership to come to power. More representative systems create styles of leadership which inherently involve compromise and collaboration rather than aggression and domination. This can create a political culture in which femininity and power are, uh, are not in contradiction. Greater involvement of women results in a broader uh, perspective on the crisis and paves the way for deployment of richer and more complete solutions than if they had been uh, imagined by a homogenous group. It has been extremely difficult for me to come with, up with examples of women leadership in South Africa during the pandemic. Most of the women I revere have been silently working from home and holding the fort during testing and trying time. Many in public sector um, have been very disappointing. They don't exude the leadership styles demonstrated by Angela Merkel or Jacinda Ardern. We need gender balanced environments to provide more robust decisions. We also need leadership in the public space to reflect the strong leadership that we see in the private sector. Importantly, we all need to work together and remember to always invite to the table, not just other women, but members of other minority groups that form part of the LGBT. Thank you. Thanks. Um, you know, again, there's an emphasis just like sort of basic emotional intelligence skills, which you sort of expect every leader to have, right? But yeah, unfortunately, that is not always the case. Um, Busi, I think we'll go over to you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Udile, and, and good afternoon to everyone. Thank you very much for the invitation. I am um, really honored, especially to be sharing the panel with my esteemed panelists, Dr. Lamine and Dr. Lioka. And um, it's interesting for me, before I even start, Udile, to just make the observation that it's clear that um, this COVID-19 movie that we are watching, you know, uh, is landing the same from a messaging perspective uh, to all of us as women. And I think definitely, you know, between myself and my two fellow panelists. And I think just in opening remarks, the two observations that I'd like to make, are first and foremost, let's agree that this outbreak of COVID-19 has been an enormous test of leadership where urgent and decisive action was required from head of states in particular. And I think as both Dr. Lioka and Dr. Lamini have just observed, that it has been interesting to note that uh, all countries that have done phenomenally well in as far as responding to the crisis have been those countries that have been led by women. So maybe let's agree that indeed women make better leaders because to be successful, you need to be a leader that adjusts your response to suit the current crisis and the situation that you are facing at the time. And maybe let's agree that our feminine skills that are normally 
said to be not leadership skills are what has been required during this crisis. The skills of inclusion, the skills of relational intelligence, the skills of deep listening, the skills of empathy, the skills of intuition has what has made these countries to actually succeed, you know, and have these demonstrable track records that they've had versus the countries that have actually been led by men. And maybe let's also agree at this point that maybe soft is the new hard, because they normally say that the soft skills that we possess as women are not what is required from a leadership perspective. But I think this has shown that soft indeed during this crisis time has been the new hard. So for me, this says a lot about crisis leadership and gender. And I think the case in point, I think, demonstrates that uh, to a very large extent. So if nothing else, maybe let's accept that the messages that we have been fed as women, that we are not able, that we are not skilled, that we are not leadership worthy, are definitely incorrect and they are wrong. And the second observation I think I'd like to make is that it's interesting to me, and it's said to have observed that the biggest brand that has been uh, uh, born during this time has actually been born by women. And Tabi has already spoken about the fact that we have seen that domestic and gender-based violence that has actually been on the rise, especially in South Africa during this critical time. We have also observed and seen how healthcare workers have actually been the most impacted. And Tabi has said that 70% of them worldwide are all women, and therefore they've been worst impacted during this time. It's also interesting that during the three million, or oh, out of the three million jobs that have been lost in both the formal and informal sector, two million of those people that have lost their jobs have been women. And it's unfortunate because you're sitting in a country where 40% of households are actually led by women. So it's worrying because it therefore says that the crisis around the social situation that we have in this country is only going to deepen as a result of COVID-19. I think that having observed these things, maybe let's agree that there's never been a more opportune time for us to start driving a different positioning around women leadership. There's never been a more opportune time for us to start changing the narrative around female leadership. I don't think there's ever been an opportune time to start challenging some of the stereotypes that exist in as far as women leadership is concerned. So let's accept that, that the thinking that men are the default when it comes to leadership and women are an anomaly is definitely flawed because I think the current crisis has proven otherwise. Let this be an affirmation for us as women that we indeed need to ensure that we take a stand, hold our ground, and we should never apologize for who we are. I think let's accept that the masculine-infused image of leadership is definitely a fallacy. Maybe let this help us as women to get to a point where we stop questioning ourselves. Let this assist us to get to a point where we walk into a room, own it, you know, and view ourselves as marked for success. I think this being the 25 years since we came from the Beijing conference as women, I'm hoping that this should rid us of the imposter syndrome that so many of us 
suffer from. I think it's time that women in the world take their rightful place. And as Marianne Wilson says, our playing small as women doesn't change the world. And there is nothing enlightened about shrinking as women so that other people don't feel secure, don't feel insecure around us. And I'm hoping that this particular time really serves as that uh, affirmation or delay. And I think that it encourages us as women and it allows us to have that spring in our step as we go about our daily activities and assume the leadership positions that we assume to say that indeed the leadership thing is innate on women. It really comes naturally to us. I don't think that we actually have to dig very deep, you know, inside of ourselves to actually practice the required leadership, especially during times of crisis. Thank you very much. Thanks, Percy. I think I like the soft is the new hard. I think we can all take that with us. Um, we'll go to the questions now. Um, I'll start with Mum Judy. Um, there's a question for you that says, based on the experiences from countries who have managed to deal with COVID-19 better, what lessons do you think can be learned by South Africa to deal with the COVID-19 crisis and ramifications? Uh, thanks for that question. Uh, South Africa's challenge, in my view, the biggest challenge we have is inequity. As alluded to by my fellow uh, panelists, uh, social distancing is a luxury you cannot have in the shacks. A lot of these things that are called for in order to flatten the curve, in order to curb the pandemic, are just not doable for the majority in this country. So for me, the lesson that we've learned is that we need to redress the inequality in this country as a matter of agency. If you look at, we have so many challenges and they were exposed by this pandemic if people didn't know about them. Not having running water, uh, we watched uh, at the, in, in Western Cape where someone from his shack was actually beaten by police. He had to run out naked. Just respect for human dignity. It, it, it actually, for me, it's been one of the saddest moments post a political independence because it just reminded me just how much we still have to achieve. A vote is great, but it's not everything. So if there's anything that we have learned, at least that I believe our leaders should have learned, is that equality is not a, a nice to have. It's an imperative because the people that are suffering the most are the majority. So, yeah. Thanks, thanks, Mom Judy. Um, Dr. Tabi, um, the next question is for you. So you spoke of a feminine approach to leadership. You also suggested that the current social order does not allow um, for the leadership style that you advocate for. What social order is conducive to this kind of, le kind of leadership and furthermore, fundamental change, not only in the health sector? I think, um, you know, the, our leadership is not completely inclusive. We may have a high percentage of women in, in um, government, for instance, and I'll choose government because that's where uh, they're the ones that are at the center of the uh, 
pandemic in terms of leadership and, and giving us direction and, on where to go and how we're going to get out of this, this rut. Um, it's also, you know, what it's also the type of people that you have in leadership roles. So it's not all well and good to have a government that is almost 50% or uh, aims to have a 50% female representation. It's the type of women that you have, the type of men that you have in leadership roles that is important. So inclusivity just isn't about the numbers. It's also about the ability to do what is necessary and lead. And, and I think that's where we fall short. Um, and unfortunately, the way politics is designed is that you need to be a member of, and a lot of those who can lead um, are not a member of. Thanks, Tabby. Um, Busi, I'll give this question to you. Um, someone asked, why are women not calling out those men in leadership that have been so irresponsible in their approach to the pandemic? So I think, Udili, I spoke to the fact that a lot of us as women are suffering from what is called the imposter syndrome. And that is a fact. And when we often ascend to these positions, you are just too happy to have a seat on the table. And you forget that you are there precisely because you have earned your stripes to have the seat on the table. And you are therefore to start raising you are there to ensure that you start raising some of the critical questions, you know, and, 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 and uh, observations that probably maybe only a, a woman can actually raise. And I, 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 I don't think that we are doing enough in terms of being forthcoming. I don't think that we're doing enough in terms of sticking our necks out, you know, and speaking truth to power, but also speaking truth to our own constituency. You know, I think that um the the this notion of you are damned if you do when you are damned if you don't i think really paralyzes us as women because then if you speak out you speak too much you know uh, you are too aggressive you know uh and whatever the case is and if you are not speaking then you are either too quiet and you fail to assert yourself and 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 so I think it, 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 it's difficult being a woman leader and being a leader, I think, in a space where you are in the minority, you know, because um, I think the things for women will really change once you have enough women in leadership advocating for the same things. So I think we find ourselves normally in that disadvantaged position, you know, where we, 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 there just isn't enough voice, you know, that is advocating for the same things. And I think the fact that you are already in a minority, I think, just disempowers and, 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 and weakens you. But I'm hoping that as, as time goes on, you know, some, some of those things are actually going to change and we'll see a, 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 a fundamental shift, you know, where women are really uh, taking their rightful place, you know, when it comes to some of these issues and when it comes to leadership positions indeed. Thanks, Percy. Um, you spoke about um, effective leadership and women being more effective in their leadership. And often we look at how, you know, we want women to change rather than, you know, putting it on the side of men. So, for example, when we talk about gender-based violence, it's, you know, women need to fight, you know, to have themselves protected rather than looking at the role that men play. Um, don't you think that 
you know, instead of the bar being very high for women, we perhaps have a pretty low bar for men. And I think around the world, we've seen pretty mediocre leaders currently leading countries. Um, how do we, I suppose like it's a societal problem, right? How do we reconfigure our society to stop, you know, sort of putting the bar so low for male leadership? Uh, it, it's interesting you raise that point, Udile, because even now I see on the chat that uh, people are saying, uh, why are women not pulling out a poor leadership? Why is society, why should it be the duty of women, right? That's one. The second thing is that I really feel that a lot of weight is placed on women. And if men are in leadership in all sectors of society, the status is not going to change unless some of those men stand with us to fight for equity and what is right for this country. It will take very long if only women are fighting for what is right for this society. We need men fighting alongside with us, which was the case. This country was not liberated by men. This country was liberated by men and women. We need that same comrade to actually liberate ourselves from poverty and inequality. So I call upon men. Men know their friends who abuse women and they do nothing about it. The locker room talk has to change. And who is in that locker room? It's men. So we need men more than people want to admit. Thanks, Mom Judy. Um, Toby, perhaps I'll give this one to you. Um, someone in the chat says, why are women not supportive of each other in leadership? Have we been conditioned by culture, religion, patriarchy to perceive each other as inferior to the opposite sex? What can we do to, to change these ideals? I think um, Guti mentioned it earlier that we are happy to be the only one, we're happy to be there. Instead of really understanding your role when you're in a leadership position. Your role, especially in a country like ours, is to change the, the entity that you work in. Or you know, if you're sitting on a board, to change the thinking and to influence the thinking, to ask the really tough question, why is this company not transformed? Why are our suppliers not you know, representative of the demographics of the country? Why is the executive not uh, representative of this you know, of the demographics. And if as a woman you don't see that, uh, that is a problem. And unfortunately, we do have a lot of women who don't realize that you're not there just to look pretty, you're there to effect change. And that's the responsibility that you have, uh, that we all have in South Africa. And actually globally, part of the reason why, you know, the, the change that Black Lives Matter movement has made globally is you're not seeing these huge companies that are recognizing that they are not transformed, they don't reflect the world in which they operate in. And so they want to reflect that and they're getting more people of color and disabled people, et cetera, to be part of their leadership structures. Again, if you're put, if you are, you know, privileged enough to be put in that position, it is just not a privilege that you just, unfortunately, it's just not something that you just sit there and not do effect change. You have the responsibility to effect change. And this goes not just in the boardroom or in organizations that we work in, but all the way through to government. Uh, and if we all as a society recognize this, I think that we will shape a better 
South Africa and we wouldn't be having this discussion in 2020. And I'm hoping that in the years to come, we'll be having different discussions about gender rather than wondering why women close the doors for other women. Thanks, Tavi. So, um, Busi, perhaps building on that, so again, it sounds like we're sort of just putting another layer of responsibility on women, so raising that bar even further for women. Um, how could we perhaps, and I know in the private sector, you know, it's really easy to, you know, set performance targets, you know, because people are held directly accountable. So sometimes, you know, we sort of have to look to the private sector as a model to how, you know, the government could perhaps also operate in terms of, you know, making sure that people are performing. How could the private sector perhaps um, play a role in ensuring that men also have that responsibility? So, for example, women get into the boardroom, they're around the table, and we expect them to open the doors to other women. How can we make sure that men are also responsible for that? And we could perhaps sort of make the same argument for, for black, the black-white argument as well, right? So we say, you know, a black person is in there, so they need to open the door for other black people. Surely it's also the responsibility of the white people in the room to make sure that they are developing black people as well. So men also developing women. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I, I don't know if the private sector is actually the right example to make when it comes to transformation of any kind, by the way, you know, whether it be gender transformation or it be transformation in the sense of, you know, race transformation, both gender and race transformation, we are dismally failing as the private sector. I mean, this is confirmed by the Department of Labor, Commissioner for Employment Equity Reports that comes out year after year, which says that 26 years into democracy, black Africans in executive positions are only at 26% and women are about at 20%. Black African women are actually at about 4%, which is dismal. Because when you look at the stats, you know, they will tell you that there is more black African women entering universities, there is more of us graduating, there is more of us being absorbed into corporate South Africa. So let's agree that there is this artificial clustering that exists in the private sector for women to actually ascend, you know, and make it to the C-suite as it were. I think as much as I agree with you that it is not only the responsibility of women to open the door for other women and of uh, black people to open the door to other black people, but I would like to probably maybe, and, and I guess, you know, the, the sooner we realize that this transformation issue, both gender and race, by the way, is, is, is not a black issue. It is a South African issue. I think the better it is, right? Because I guess, you, 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 you therefore start sitting with this burden as a black person and as a woman to actually drive the transformation agenda. But can I maybe put it, you know, uh, Odile, that I think that as black professionals, precisely because we know where we have come from, precisely because we know the difficulty, as Dr. Judith Lamini has spoken to, of actually ascending the corporate ladder and making it to the top. We have an obligation, you know, I'm not saying that white people don't, but black professionals and women leaders need to accept that we have got an obligation, that as soon as we make it to the top, we don't fold the ladder and take it up with us. You actually hold the ladder so that there are more of us that are actually going to be coming up because we are not going to change this conversation. We are not going to change the landscape. We are not going to change things by being the only one in the room. You know, things will start shifting 
once there's more voices advocating for the same thing. So it is therefore counterintuitive, you know, to be sitting there to Tabby's point, you know, and look pretty and don't think that you have an obligation to actually raise the transformation issue. I think you should actually be a mosquito in your, you know, a, a, a colleague's ears to say that, hey, we know she's going to raise the transformation issue or she's going to raise the gender agenda. We have that obligation, you know, because unless and until we do that, this fight is way too big, way too deep, way too broad for any one person to, tend, to can take it on on their own. So I think also when you look at the numbers, it actually makes sense. So I don't think we should actually feel ashamed, you know, when we actually reach these positions to start advocating for these things. Because if you want to be sitting in a country of 80% black people or black African people, of course, black Africans need to be the more people in the room. It goes without saying. We need to get to a point where some of these things start mimicking, you know, the population on the ground. You know, and if you're going to have 53%, you know, uh, females, then it makes sense that, you know, if you're sitting in a boardroom, then there definitely has to be more women than there is men. So I really think that, you know, there is that application, but I'm mainly placing the onus, you know, on black Africans and on black women in particular to strongly and unashamedly, unapologetically drive this agenda. If I may come in there just to support what Busi has said, and uh, just bring a practical example, because it's also important to, to, to say, how do you then do it? You find yourself in a position of leadership, what do you do? Where I led a board of one of the JSE listed companies, I made it my point that I am going to bring men along to change the status quo. By giving them a carrot, I started a prize a chairman's prize for a man that has empowered women. And they were going to be selected by their peers and they would compete amongst themselves. That's very important. So it's not only the stick, but it's also the carrot. Your context will tell to you as to what you change. Tabi is right. When you get to these positions, each time you are the first person in a position of your social identity, what it tells you is that one, chances are not the best person for that position. There are a lot of people that look like you who are better than you, but didn't have access. Therefore, your obligation is to give it your best, to compensate for occupying that space that might be blocking someone who's better than you. The other one is um, we had a time in one of the boards where I had influence, where we had to choose a chair of the audit committee. These things matter. That's why I'm talking about them. And I made it very clear that the person who's going to have this position is an African woman. So let's not waste anyone's time. Let's advertise for African women so that they compete amongst themselves. We got the best chairman. And the white men around the room, after we had gone through the interviews, asked, where do these women come from? And that's exactly the point. They are there. You just need someone within the room to actually say, hang on, stop everything and focus on this group because if the intention is to redress 
exclusion of capable people, then look at those capable people and only have those people. And I want to hasten to say, black men, we need your support because the challenge that we have, once you say race, black men connive with white men and take up positions and pretend like we were not in the trenches with them. When you say women, guess what? White women get the positions. So a black woman is down there and has no one in the room fighting with them and for them. And black men, we were in the trenches with you. We have to liberate this country economically together. We need your help. So each time you put the honors on black women, please call out the black men too. Thank you, Mom Judy. Um, Tabi, do you have anything to add to that? I totally agree, and I've experienced it myself. So I am. The, that's why I'm smiling because that is absolutely true. I mean, if you look at academia, most graduates are women. Uh, you know, I studied overseas, and most Black South Africans that I've encountered, be it in the US or the UK or anywhere in Europe, were women. So then uh, you come back to South Africa, and you come back to you know to corporate South Africa. And Everybody's looking for these elusive, these elusive women who are everywhere um, and who have been in leadership positions but haven't been given the opportunity to be executives or to sit on board. And so, yes, we are there, but we're never seen. And, and I think what is interesting with what uh, Mam Judy mentioned is that we're never even, we're not even seen by our own, by our own black men. And that for me is the very worst. And my personal experience uh, as someone who, I guess, um, you know, in my 40s looks a lot younger, I can, so that's another barrier that I have to also try to fight. Not only is it just um, being a woman, but the ageism that also comes with it is, is also quite shocking. So yeah, women have a lot of barriers. And I think that for those women who've made it, I really do, you know, congratulate them. And I, because I know what it takes to get there and also what it's taking them every day to fight to be there and to make sure that everybody understands their worth. It's a perpetual everyday fight uh, to be a black woman. Thanks, Tabi. Yeah, first we, we're too young and then we're too old, right? <laughs> so um, we've got like, I think, three minutes left. Um, maybe I'll take, um, I'll pose this question to all of you. Um, as closing remarks, what is your advice to women who are striving to be leadership and those who are already there to assert themselves so that women can be heard and respected up there? Mum um, Judy, maybe you can go first. Uh, firstly, thank you so much for the opportunity. May we have more of this. Tabi is so right. Ageism just adds. We haven't touched about disability. It's just there's so many social identities that work against you. What I've learned as a leader, especially as a woman leader, is that always own your femininity. Always but be always firm. Look for people who actually share what you're trying to achieve. There'll always be alliances. Just find them. 
you will lose some battles, but it's okay. Lose them with grace, but galvanize your efforts, get more allies, and continue to fight. Because if you look at just how few we are in leadership positions, especially African women, it's therefore important that each one of us, unless you do it, my granddaughter will be talking about this thing in a webinar that is down the, the road, and it's just not on. More importantly, I'm now addressing it to men. I always want to work with men because alone, it's heavier, it's harder, it will take longer. Men, please support women for a better world, for everyone by that, for that matter. It's not just a better world for women, it's a better world for all of us. Thank you, Mom Judy. Toby, any wise words from you? You know, I think that uh, women should view other women as allies rather than enemies or competitors. I think there's enough room for all of us. Um, as much as we're talking about men also being uh, kind of a roadblock, women are also roadblocks to other women. So I think we need to be allies and support each other. Um, I also think that we need to also in, you know, open the door for other women and not just open the door because I believe that inclusivity is not enough. You need to not just open the door, but ensure that they sit at the table at the same level as you are and ensure that you do so with all women, uh, regardless of their backgrounds or their age, etc. cetera. Um, and you, you will learn from various women that you, and various people that you wouldn't have thought you would learn from because your circle has been quite tightened of people who are like you. So the bigger your circle, um, the more gender diverse it is, um, I think the better. I've learned a lot from young people. Uh, from my own even prejudices that I used to have and um, the language that they adopt, um, you know, on gender, on race, on of all, you know, everything that I have learned in the recent past on those topics have come from, from women and younger women than me. And so I think that if um, we include them in leadership roles and have more gender diverse um, uh, executives and boards, I think that we will be a better country or you know have better companies um, I also think that yeah in, you know we have we embrace the dynamism that we have in South Africa I think that women are extremely dynamic more so than many other women globally because of our experiences as as South African women and African women and um, ensure support them and, and give them a helping hand and that's what I hope I you know I am doing and I hope that I continue to do into the future. Thanks Tabi. Um, Busi any quick remarks from you? Absolutely so I think probably my closing remarks and my my um, message would be that I think as women we need to start learning and understanding and accepting that as we are, we are enough. And I don't think that we internalize that a lot. I don't think that we hear that a lot. I don't think that we tell ourselves that a lot. As we are, we are enough. And we often hold ourselves to very high standards. 
and I guess maybe as we should, because we know that we come into spaces where we are not wanted and needed. And therefore, you know, we always find ourselves swimming against the tide. And I guess that is what makes us to be very hard on ourselves. We often second guess ourselves. You know, we normally beat ourselves up, especially in the face of negative feedback. And we forget that feedback is not absolute. Feedback is merely an opinion grounded in observation that allows us to understand what impression we have made on others. So even if you get negative feedback, it, that's all that it is. It's their opinion of how they've experienced you. You know, so it's no reason for us to beat ourselves up and, you know, think that it is the end of the world and whatever the case is. And I think probably maybe finally, let's accept that we have both strengths and weaknesses, as it should, by the way, and that is okay. But you don't become outstanding by focusing on your weaknesses. You become outstanding by focusing on your strengths. And I think if we can just accept that, because we are never going to be perfect, and we are not working towards perfection, because we'll never be perfect, and it's okay. But I think let's just focus on our strengths and accept our weaknesses as they are. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Busi, Dr. Klavi, and Mom Judy. You guys have been amazing, very insightful comments. I think all of us have learned a lot. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the VIS School of Governance. For more information, visit our website on www.vits.ac.za.